Welcome to the Royal Geographical Society with IBG Ask the Geographer podcast series. I'm Laura and in each episode we'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. Sustainable Development Goal number 11 aims to make cities inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. But what sorts of challenges do urban residents face? Cities are home to 54% of the population and by 2050 it's expected to be 70%. The vast majority of this growth will be located in cities in Africa and Asia. In this podcast we're interviewing Mike Collier, Professor of Geography at the University of Sussex and Lead Investigator of the RGS IBG Field Research Programme, Migrants on the Margins. We find out more about this project and how the research, conducted in four dynamic cities, Colombo, Dhaka, Hargeisa and Harare, hopes to improve urban governance for the migrants and residents who negotiate extreme inequalities as part of everyday life. You're currently leading a project called Migrants on the Margins. Can you tell me, in short, what the title of the project means and why it is important? There's two elements to the title, obviously. The first, the migrants element, refers to the very significant movement into cities that, uh, that we expect to, to involve millions and millions of people in between now and, and 2050, one of the largest migrations anywhere in the world, taken as a, as a whole. And the the second part refers to the frequent marginality of people who move into cities. So we're not interested in all migrants, many of whom are prosperous and wealthy, but we're particularly interested in the the majority of migrants who will really struggle when they move to those cities. So where is this research taking place and why have you chosen these particular areas? There are four cities that we're interested in. Dakar in Bangladesh, Colombo in Sri Lanka, Harare in Zimbabwe and Hargeisa in Somaliland. And the considerations that um, that we had in choosing those cities was, firstly, we know that most migration is going to take place into medium-sized cities. So there's been a lot of attention to megacities, the cities of more than 10 million, but it's the slightly smaller cities which are going to be affected most significantly by migration. The Colombo, uh, Harare and Hargeisa are all between a million and two million. Dakar is the exception in the sense that it's much, much larger. In some estimates, it's already a mega city, but it's probably about seven or eight million at the moment, although it is growing very fast. So we have a variety of sizes of city, but focusing at these medium-sized cities. All of the cities have significant in-migration, so they're all growing because of people moving into the cities. And the reasons for those people migrating um, and it's difficult to, to simplify, but elements of climate change, environmental change and political instability um, play a role in that, at least. We can be reasonably certain that whatever the causes of, of that migration, and migration is very complex in its causes, movement into those four cities is caused in part, at least, by a combination of environmental change and political instability in the areas to which, from which people are moving. And the final consideration is a practical one, that the, the research team, as we put it together, 
has significant experience. At least one of us on the team has significant experience of working in each of these cities in the UK. And we have very good contacts with some really fantastic international partners who are based in these cities. So there was theoretical concerns in selecting the the cities, but also practical concerns. So you mentioned a term there, in-migration. Can you tell me what you mean by that term? Usually I tend to refer to migration as an umbrella term for migration in lots of directions. In-migration is movement into the city and out migration is movement from out from beyond um, the uh, the place that you're referring to. Another common classification is between internal and international migration. So internal migration is within countries and international migration is, is any movement that crosses international border. Because of the, the location of these cities, they're all, all located in the global south, um, the migration that we're interested in is inevitably south-south migration movement from from one um, country which is defined as as being relatively poorer than than others to to either within that country or between countries in the in the global south and these sorts of migrations are significant firstly because they're certainly larger than international migration the the best estimates that we have are that there's about 750 million internal migrants in the world and about 250 million international migrants. So the the number of internal migrants is approximately three times the number of international migrants. And that's likely to be full of errors. The international migrants are counted much more accurately, so that figure is likely to be more accurate, and internal migrants are not counted particularly well, so that figure is likely to be an underestimate. So it's at least three times as many internal migrants as international migrants in the world. The movement from one poorer country to another is another big statistical gap in the way we we understand migration that movement into and out of wealthier countries is measured reasonably accurately but movement into or out of and particularly within poorer countries the statistical basis that we have is much more uncertain so these sorts of movements internal south to south migration are certainly larger and much less is known about them so that's the justification for studying them in this project. I wonder if you could just classify what you mean by the term Global South, so um, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the term, what does Global South mean? Global South is a an umbrella term to refer to the poorer countries of the world. It's a replacement for what was previously referred to as developing or less developed countries, and it's contrasted to the Global North. One of the problems with that term is that it's not directly accurate. The global north includes countries like Australia that are obviously in the south, so it's it's a slightly problematic term. I tend to refer to, to poorer countries or low-income countries as an umbrella term rather than global south and global north, but these terms south-south migration are, require that sort of explanation. You kind of mentioned there the kind of different terms that you use to describe countries, and when we're talking about inequality and spatial inequality, we often there's often various different measures and labels that are attributed to describe countries. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about why these might be problematic or how to think about them more with more complexity. And there's two reasons, two broad reasons why I think those kind of labels are problematic. Um, firstly, in terms of accuracy, 
that we're talking about averages across entire countries and one of the the characteristics of of contemporary global inequality is that inequality is in most cases much larger within countries than it is between countries so if we're talking about a uh, a country like India for example one of the largest countries in the world then contains a very large number of very very poor people and a very large number of extremely wealthy people some of the wealthiest people in the world so making general characteristics or classifications of across the entire country across any country is is problematic because it hides substantial variation within that and secondly um, in more ideological terms there is a, a difficulty in any sort of measurement which labels some countries as having completed a process and then tries to position other countries at some way further along that process because it suggests that all countries follow the same process that the the end point of development is to look something like western europe or north america and we know that development is a much more complex process than that and there's a whole range of ways in which countries can can diverge from that so looking at, at something as partial as simplified as income gives an indication of that without suggesting that, that there is a single path through which countries are going to change in the future as part of the migrants on the modest project you've kind to try to illustrate a more holistic or fuller picture of everyday life for people living through these migration stories and living in these medium-sized cities could you tell me a little bit more about what that everyday life looks like at these places that you've been studying between the four cities there are obviously very significant differences and and one of the things that we're highlighting in the in the project is is how those differences play out in terms of different sorts of occupation different sorts of conditions and at a, at a global scale that's influenced by things like climate change each city is affected very differently by climate change by integration into the global economy Sri Lanka is a middle-income country and the other three countries, Bangladesh, Zimbabwe and, and Somaliland, are all um, low-income countries. So they're, they're involved in the global economy very differently. So there are clear differences and distinctions between the four cities. But another of the things that, that we're interested in, and, and one of the reasons for doing a comparative study, is to, to look at some of the similarities and the, the similarities across the cities are really what we are hoping to draw attention to in, in this context. So we've picked four very different cities and the fact that people moving into those cities have quite similar experiences um, tells us something interesting and important about the nature of migration into cities. Things like the security of tenure that people have, the experience of, of tenure is, is common across the cities, that there's a tremendous level of uncertainty. People don't know whether they will be able to continue living where they are living for, for very much longer. In some cases they're concerned about even the next day they might be evicted. In other cases they're reasonably confident that they could live where they're living till the end of the year, but they don't really know beyond that. So there is a real uncertainty about the right to live where they're living in terms of the nature of work that people are doing. There is a, um, a real intensity of, of work across all cities. People work significantly more than, than full-time, our surveys have shown, on average. And they're doing relatively similar types of, of work. They're doing 
um, unskilled labour, um, things like rickshaw pulling in uh, in Bangladesh, very very difficult, hard, menial labour that not many other people want to do. Um, a lot of of women are working, and domestic work is is very common uh, amongst um, women in these areas. Again, you know, quite hard, often quite degrading work that these cities depend on. So so in each case what our research is is helping to demonstrate is that people who live in these very marginal conditions are actually making a very significant contribution to the life of the city. So that's probably the the most significant commonality. And in all cases, viewed from the outside, these sorts of migrations are often seen as very problematic. Um, and that's one of the things that we hope our research will help to, to correct, that, uh, that it's not the case that people moving into the city are increasing overcrowding, they're, bringing, they're seen as living in places of crime and disease and squalor, um, seen in very negative terms like that, where, whereas in effect they are the, the first victims of that crime and, and disease and, uh, uh, and, and really intense overcrowding. And at the same time, they're making a very significant contribution to the city. How have you interacted with um, different forms of different scales of governance that try to improve the conditions or support the communities that are trying to settle um, and, you know, be part of a place? We're working with a, a set of ideas usually referred to as multi-level governance, which identifies the fact that the sort of decisions that are made about a place are made at a whole variety of different scales. It's not just national government, for example, that influence what goes on. So within these neighbourhoods, in most cases, although not all, there's some form of community organisation, sort of neighbourhood organisation set up by people living in the neighbourhoods themselves. In some cases, there's more than one neighbourhood association. Then there are forms of, um, of local government within the, the municipality, so the, the ward organisation or the, um, um, in, in Colombo, they're called Grama Nilidari divisions, which are the smallest level of local government. And there are official local government um, organisations at, at that level, at very small, small scale, involving maybe two or three thousand households. Then there's a municipal level of government, and that might well involve the municipal police force as well as some sort of school board, things like um, rubbish collection and um, um, local education, particularly primary education, are often organised at that sort of municipal level. And then the, within the country there's obviously the national government that set the framework for, for urban development. In, in each case we're working in the, the capital city, slightly complicated in um, Colombo isn't technically the political capital of Sri Lanka and Hargeisa is, although it's the capital of Somaliland, Somaliland is not a recognised country but with those exceptions we're working in the, the major city of the countries that we're working in. Um, so this is the most important city in governmental terms and, and in a number of cases the Urban development authorities are, are also based in these cities. National urban development authorities are also based in these cities. So there's a really complex jigsaw of different organisations, different governance organisations within the country. Um, and we're working with individuals from each of those, each of those levels, from community level up to, to national representatives. 
And then beyond that, there is a an infrastructure of international organisations, um, organisations like UN Habitat, for example, or NGOs like Slum Dwellers International, who attempt to advocate on behalf of people living in situations like this and and have a degree of international influence. So when we talk about multi-level governance, it's these sort of five or six different layers of government that all interact simultaneously. It's not not that one is is more significant or more important than another, but they all combine to have an influence about what's going on in these neighbourhoods where we're working. So as the world becomes increasingly urban, um, how do you hope your research will shape and influence conversations around sustainable development in medium-sized cities and intersect with some of these conversations around governance that we've just discussed? We hope that that our research will reduce some of the stigma that people living in these neighbourhoods face. Um, it's, it's common in this sort of situation to say that you know, when people are going for jobs, they can't report which neighbourhood they live in because they think that will affect whether they're likely to get the job or not. The, the way that, um, that these governance structures often interact with people living in these neighbourhoods is to assume that they're not fully engaged in the questions that affect them, which is one reason why it's been very important for us to work with neighbourhood organisations and to, to highlight the existence of neighbourhood organisations. And in some cases to bring representatives of neighbourhood organisations together in meetings with representatives of local and national government. Um, that's happened in, in all of the cities where we're working. To help to, to reduce the sorts of stigma that, that people are faced with. To highlight the fact to um, to local and national governments that the people living within these cities are, are in some cases the best experts themselves about informing ways of responding to the sorts of difficulties that they face so trying to engage with people living there and recognizing and respecting the knowledge that they have about their environments contributing to this i mean we're certainly not the the first people um, and certainly not the only people to, to try to develop these ideas, but there is a number of people around the world working in this direction and we hope that our research will, will contribute um, to this broader goal of linking up people living in very poor urban neighbourhoods with the sorts of governance structures that can help to, to resolve and respond to the situation that they're in. Can you tell me a little bit more about the methods that are being used by the project team and these areas and cities? The method that we're using, in common with quite a lot of geographical research, is multi-method. We've used a combination of quantitative, which are more statistical methods, um, and qualitative methods, which are more open-ended, interview-based methods. On the one hand, we've done systematic surveys in, in each of the neighbourhoods where we're working. We're working in three neighbourhoods in each of the four cities. So we've conducted what will end up being just over a thousand household surveys in each city, so just over four thousand household surveys. And they were informed by focus groups within each city. We got together um, people on a number of different bases in each city. We had at least three focus groups. A, a mixed focus group, um, an all-women focus group, because often it's, it's recognised that where you have focus groups with men and women in it tends to be dominated by men. So it's usually important to have a women-only focus group to highlight particular concerns that, that uh, women are faced with and to, to give them an opportunity to speak. 
And then in some contexts, we had focus groups with just with younger people, because for similar reasons, often the voice of younger people is marginalised in context where it tends to be older people who, um, who do all the talking. Um, and elsewhere, if it was um, felt that particular ethnic groups, it was important to separate out, um, particularly minority ethnic groups. In the, in the case of Colombo, in some neighbourhoods, um, we did focus groups just with Tamils, for example, as opposed to the majority Sinhalese population. So the, the constitution of the focus groups varied, but we asked very similar questions to try to identify what people thought about mobility and migration and what people thought about their neighbourhood. Those focus groups fed into a set of interviews based around Q method, which was to give people a series of statements which came from the, the focus groups and ask them on an individual basis to rank them, to, to strongly agree with, as we gave them 40 statements, and they could strongly agree with one and strongly disagree with one. And then in increasing numbers, they had to more or less disagree or agree with others. And in the middle, they had eight statements that they could say, well, I neither really, I don't feel particularly strongly either way about these statements. So it was a sort of um, um, pyramid shape to this, um, a normal distribution. Um, to these statements and we used those to generate particular profiles that were then fed into the questionnaire which was the, the most significant quantitative technique. On the other side in terms of qualitative interviews we've conducted a whole range of interviews, 50 interviews um, with migrants to each city. Um, obviously not all of the people living in the neighbourhoods where we're working are migrants but we wanted to try to identify the migrants and particularly focus on their experience. So we have 200 interviews with migrants. And these are long migration history interviews in which we ask people to, to start from the place where they were born in many cases, and then to talk about each subsequent movement and explain the justification for that movement and what the sort of situations they were facing were. And for some people that was just a single movement. They moved from somewhere outside the city into the city. In some places it was a series of movements within the city. Um, and in other contexts, it was a, a whole series of movements into the city, back out again. Very complex migration history involving 20 or 25 different movements in the course of their lives. And in addition to those interviews, a, a section of those people that we spoke to with these migration history interviews, we've done particular walks with. So we've asked them if we can walk along with them for part of their, their daily journey. If they walk to work, for example, then we go along with them and we interview them on the way, asking them about um, the things they do, whether they take public transport or not, um, how they use different different areas of the city and what they think about different areas of the city, whether they, they try and avoid certain areas because they're concerned about what might happen there, whether they prefer particular routes, whether they like to go through the park because it's pretty and it's, it improves their day or whether they prefer going directly, those sorts of questions that are, are individual and very subjective. So that's the, the element of, of people's lives that, that that side of the research has tried to get to. Um, and we've mapped those those interviews. We've also worked with community groups to try to identify maps of the neighbourhood. We've got straightforward GIS satellite images of each neighbourhood, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the way that people think of their neighbourhoods themselves. 
So we've asked people to talk about the boundaries of their neighbourhood and to talk about things that they're particularly proud of within their neighbourhood and conversely things that they think need improving in their neighbourhood and to um, to take photos of those things or to um, uh, to, to note where they are on, on our maps that we've got of these neighbourhoods. So much more subjective um, ways of investigating the same sorts of things. So by combining these, the quantitative survey work, Q methods, and the more qualitative, long and structured interviews, walk-along interviews, community mapping, we hope that we've got a a more complete picture of what's going on in these neighbourhoods. Were there any similarities, or on the other side of the coin, very differences between um, when you were going on these walk-along interviews, um, spaces that people were very proud of, or, you know, were their favourite parts of their community, or things that they were unhappy with? Is there any similarities or differences? Now that was one of the, mm. the more interesting things. I've not, I've not looked through all of them. We've just finished doing them in some cities. But the, the ones that I've been involved in, um, it was noticeable that people highlighted very similar spaces that they were unhappy with. And often that was linked to, to real intensities of traffic, of motor traffic, um, problems with pollution, for example. Um, in some cases it was quite interesting because even though we were um, doing the walk-alongs in the dry season, they would highlight the fact that significant areas were flooded, in some cases quite deeply, at, at other times of the year. So this was information that um, that we wouldn't have got about the areas just visiting them at that particular time. So, so there were significant environmental concerns that people expressed. And the things that, that people were most commonly proud of were things that resulted in some sort of collective effort. In, in one place there was a, a community centre that, that had been built at the effort of the community, in a very small place, there's often very little space available, but, um, but this was something that a number of people highlighted that, um, that was something they considered to be a really positive element of the, of the community. So to generalise the negative things that they were concerned about were more environmental elements and the the more positive things were were things where they felt the community had 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 an impact on the place where they they were living the society has produced a range of educational resources to support classroom learning of migrants on the margins for in-depth case studies videos animation and lesson activities visit www.rgs.org forward slash migrants on the margins. This recording was funded by the Global Learning Programme.